Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Batts. I'm a, one of the geriatricians from across the way, and also, uh, as you can see here, uh, I'm assistant professor at the medical school and one of the faculty here. And it's uh, nice to see some familiar faces and, and others here on a uh, on a day that it, at least it's starting to warm up. And I, I'm hoping that this the tide is turning here, weather-wise. Uh, so what, what I'll be talking to you today is about um, the changes that occur with muscle as one ages and uh, explain to you why things change, how things change, and how we're hoping, at least in our practice, to go about identifying folks who are at risk for, for weakness and muscle loss. And then more, most importantly, I think, for folks is to give some strategies that may be able to be helpful for all of you, uh, and more discussion points to be able to take back to your provider, because everybody's situation is, is individualized, and it's very difficult to kind of give general, I can give a general overview, but everybody, of course, is, uh, is, uh, is different. And at any point, if you have any questions, you can't hear me, uh, you just, you know, put your hand up and, and, and stop me. I have, this is, meant to be a little bit of intera interactive uh, session as well. <coughs> and I always put up just, this is more kind of from a medical standpoint, we always say, where, where, are you, where is my time paid from? And I'm on a number of grants, in particular our geriatric education grant, which allows me to do lectures like this. So, trivia part one, what is this? <laughs> Tsunami. It's a tidal wave which can lead to tsunami. a tsunami. And so I, I always love this picture, not because of what it can do, because no one want, no one likes the after effects. But really, it's about our changing demographic. Um, in the in the press, we've heard of the, you know, folks have heard about the expression the geriatric tsunami. And why is that? Well the proportion of folks over the age of 65 is actually rapidly rising. And by the year 2020, over from it, we're, we're increasing from now to from about 10 to 12% of the population being over the age of 65 to over 20% of the population will be over the age of 65. So there is a rapid rise, and there are a number of factors uh, explaining this. But what is, and as you can see here, these are some other percentages. But what the proportion of folks that are living over the age of 85 is actually the fastest rising rate and the fasting kind of group of, of people. And the reason for that has to do with improvements in medical advances and uh, in particular, uh, longer life expectancy because of that. So you can see, can you guys see the, or is there, is there a reflection? All good. Okay. There is a reflection. A little bit of a reflection. Okay. That's all right. Okay. Um, so, unfortunately for the males in the room, females live longer than males. But as you can see here from the from this graph, that in the in the 1950s, if you were 65 years of age, you would live on average, if you're a male, about 13 years, and if you're a female, you'd live on average of 15 years. And this has actually increased considerably. So a 65-year-old female is thought to live to the age of 86. And this is mean. So this is the average. So there will be folks that 
that die a little earlier, folks that die a little later. So this is kind of the, the average. So as you can see, over the course of almost uh, over 60 years, 60, 65 years, the folks are living a lot longer than what they did uh, back in the 50s. And, and with this, and this is one of the, an important point to make, folks are saying, people come to me and say, well, why are folks having, you know, they're living longer and what's happening as they live longer? Well, the, the period of time where you're at risk for disability of some sort, and that can be broadly defined, is a lot longer before uh, the, end of, the end of life. So back in the 1980s and 1990s, patients had a finite period of time where they may have been at some kind of incapacity. This period of time is actually a lot longer. So one of the goals that I think about when I talk to patients is to try to, well, we recognize this, we're trying to reduce the degree of disability and the risk of disability that one has in this period of time. So that's only one, one bit. And unfortunately, what happens as one ages, one develops increasing number of medical problems. And if you compare folks who are at the age of 18, the age of 45, to the age of 65, to the age of 85, the number of medications is a lot higher as one ages, and the number of medical problems increases as one ages. And all these factors can actually influence one's uh, overall function. So it really is kind of the, the wheels of life. And one of this, this slide I, I kind of like in the sense of this cartoon because at the beginning of life, you folks are, end up being dependent on others in their inf infancy. And then at the tail end of life, there's a risk of being dependent on others as well. And the, again, the job of one's primary care provider and one's, uh, or one's geriatrician is to maximize the degree of function. And this is what I'm hoping to convey to you over the course of the next hour, is really how, how can we go about doing that? But before I kind of dive into things, I always like to make sure everybody's on the same page with regard to terminology. And uh, I have a few, few of my own patients here in the room, and you've heard me talk about activities of daily living in my visits. And what does this mean? And providers and talk about this all, all the time. This is really is what is the, at the core essence of geriatrics, is about the basic activities of daily living are everything every single person does every single morning they wake up. They're in bed, they get up, they walk, they bathe, they toilet, they get dressed, and they feed themselves. Instrumental activities of daily living, and this is a little bit of a joke, but humor me, is everything a medical student does on their day off. They're shopping, they're housekeeping, they prepare their meals, they do their finances, they drive to the grocery store and they make phone calls and they socialize. It's important to kind of keep these, these two kind of uh, categories separate. Why is that? Basic activities of daily living. So these are inability to get out of bed, inability to dress yourself, toilet yourself, feed yourself, dress yourself. This is what will really lead to one's incapacity and dependence on, significantly depend, be dependent on others. In addition to folks, if they have a significant number of these impairments, may end up leading to institutionalization and leads to increased risk of, of death. What we do know is if you live long <coughs> enough, you will develop all these. And again, the goal is to kind of push 
this as far down as possible so you maximize your quality of life and physical function before you, you end up having some kind of disability of some sort. And increased risk of disability leads to loss of independence. And I think, and again, I don't want to speak for, for, for any of you in the room, but at least from my experience, the loss of one's independence is probably one of the most important factors for patients of any age, but in particular, at least the patients that I care for. This is a, a great question that was posed in a, in a given survey a couple of years back. How important is it for you, is it to you to stay in your home as long as possible rather than move to a nursing facility or an assisted living facility? It's a pretty simple question. And you can see here, no, almost 90% of folks said it was very important, the highest answer that you can ask. So no one wants to leave their home, and rightly so. And the goal is really to maximize one's independence as much as possible. Any questions on that thus far? Okay. So if I don't go to the doctor, he can't find anything wrong with me. That's how I stay healthy. <laughs> Not quite. So when we think about the changes in muscle with aging, and I know I haven't dived into this yet, but it's important for me to provide a bit of the background. <coughs> we need to think about the body changes as one ages. And this is actually, I can firmly say this, a lot of my colleagues don't realize the extent of the changes that occur with one's body. And what I mean by that is, as one ages, the degree of fat increases. So, and that may not be a, as bad of a thing in small amounts as you would think, but that's a whole different discussion on its own. I usually give a talk on, on obesity, so if you can keep, keep, out, keep an eye out for that. But the degree of muscle mass drops with age, and that is a natural phenomenon. So if you think about it, as you age, you gain fat, but you lose muscle. So you're, the way your body, that's how your body changes. And this actually impacts the, the, uh, one's ability to be able to do any kind of uh, physical function. So I, raise the, I bring up the term sarcopenia. And this, you'll hear me use this term throughout the rest of the talk. So I would ask you to just pay a little bit of attention to this. So what is sarcopenia? Well, it has to do with muscle, because that's why you're here, right? We're talking about muscle mass. And uh, sarcopenia actually is, it's, it's, it has to do with muscle, and these are, these are my kids a couple years back flexing, flexing their muscles. And to say the least, it doesn't start at this age. But it, but it does occur in one's 20s and 30s, and we'll get, get to that. So what happens with one's ability to lift weights or one's muscle mass? Well, a nice way to kind of represent this is you look at the world record holders for weightlifting. Not my favorite sport. I'm not the, you know, as you can probably tell, I'm not the most, uh, you know, uh, weightlifter type, uh, don't have the most weightlifter type physique. But you can see here that the ability to lift weight drops with age. So in the 35 to 39 year age category, or the, the athlete from Hungary is able to lift 295 kilograms. 
the law, by the way. It's like over 550 pounds or so. Um, versus you look at the 80 plus year category, the world record holder is only 90 kilograms. So the record holder isn't able to even lift the same amount, even though they're, they're, they're kind of the world record holder. So that tells you there's a natural phenomenon as one ages that the ability to do, to lift weights, to, and, and, and all drops with aging. So this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Uh, back when in his, uh, in his bodybuilder days, you can see he was quite muscular. And now his back hurts uh, as former governor of, uh, of California. But you can see, again, this is an example of changes in one's body composition and body physique. There is a natural loss of muscle as one ages. Okay, so we talked about the word sarcopenia. And unless you're like me and of Greek origin, you're probably like, okay, what, is the, what does this word, word mean? Well, we look it up. And I always think every word comes from the Greek language, if you haven't seen the, my big fat Greek wedding movie. But um, sarcopenia means sarcos, which is, means flesh, and penia, which means loss. And actually, this is a really recently defined term. So even when I was in med school in the late 90s, I didn't know anything about this. No one had ever talked about what is sarcopenia. It's emerging as a concept, uh, but it's really coined as the loss of muscle mass and muscle quality that occurs with aging. So the life course. And again, I'm alluding to what I've kind of, I'm trying to summarize what I've talked about thus far. As you age in early life, infancy, adolescence, and up to about the age of 20 to 30, there is growth and development and then you maximize your muscle mass. So, I'm past my prime now. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually going on the downhill. And what happens in adult life, there's a slow decrease, and you, some folks can maintain their peak. But really, once you hit 60 years of age, there's a, a decline. And the goal really, is, well, what ends up happening is that there's a threshold. So everybody's curve is different. And once you pass that threshold, you run the risk of having an increased risk of, of physical impairment. So what you want to try to do is alter this threshold or alter the curve so at the same age you won't have that possibility of having an impairment of some sort and I'll explain to you some ways you can try to do that uh, a little bit later so one of the things remember I mentioned to you that there's as one ages do you need a seat? I apologize. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'm going to shoot right Oh, okay, great. Um, so as, as I mentioned, as one ages, there's, a, there's an increase in one's fat content in one's body. And what ends up happening, actually, a lot of folks say, well, where does it go? It usually goes centrally into the belly. But also it actually can in, go into one's muscles. 
and this is actually a, a lose-lose combination. So I, I, I love pictures. So you can see this is a CAT scan of one's leg. And you can see what, whatever's white in the, in the CAT scan. I don't know if you can see the arrow, can you see the arrow there? That's all fat. And you can compare it to what you see on the right. So there's a dramatic difference between both sets of muscles. And this is, these are both 75-year-old patients. So even at the same age, you can have different degrees of how much fat has gone into the muscles. And needless to say, the person on the left can still walk three miles a day without a problem. The person on the right can't get out of a chair. So this does happen. So you have this sarcopenia, which is, the law, again, the loss of muscle mass and or quality with aging. That leads to frailty and that can lead to disability. So there's kind of a natural progression. So what you want to do really is, is, is identify this and stop it from, from, from progressing. Okay, so I'm going to run through a couple <coughs> of these slides. The, the big question from a clinical standpoint is how do you go about defining this? So I'm sitting there with my patients, and how do I know, well, this patient has sarcopenia, that patient has sarcopenia? I wish I had a great answer, but I don't. And that's one of the real big challenges. So you had a lot of, sm a lot of smart people, a lot smarter than me, get into a, a room, uh, uh, not once, not twice, but three times. And guess what? They still didn't figure out what was going on. But they did come up with this. They said that we knew that patients whose ability to walk, and this is on a timed walk, so in folks at risk, we actually, in our hallway across the street, if we deem someone at risk, we have them walk down the hallway with a stopwatch and we determine what their walking speed is. So if their walking speed is less than one meter per second, then they're at risk. They're, I don't know if any of you have ever done, from a medical standpoint, a six-minute walk. Usually in cardiology or in uh, pulmonary, they uh, often do that where they get you, I think, on the fifth floor and they get you to know, walk back and forth uh, about a number of times. Um, and that's a really a measure of exercise tolerance. And it, it can be very tiring. These patients who can walk less than 400 meters under six, in six minutes or less are likely to have sarcopenia. So these are different ways we can assess. Now, more complex ways, which we do not do, and a big reason we don't do it is because any test we do, we want to make sure that it's done for a clinical reason and that insurance X, Y, or Z will cover it. Well, unfortunately, no insurance, including Medicare, will cover to deter, uh, scanning to see whether or not we can assess one's muscle mass. There are a number of private clinics uh, that, you know, weight clinics or wellness clinics that will determine one's muscle and fat uh, distribution costs a lot of money. Okay. But the Rome consensus, this is a picture of my wife and myself at the St. Peter's in, in Rome. Uh, the Rome consensus really came up with kind of an overarching conceptual definition that they determined 
these smart people in the room determined that sarcopenia was age-related, so we know that, and that's been very well appreciated and solidified from here on in, and it's complex. And you know what, I, so what I say to that jokingly, I say, great, tell me something I don't know. But it was a start, and from a science standpoint, we need, a, we need to have at least a working definition to kind of go ahead. And that the causes are multifactorial. That means there are a lot of reasons for this to occur. So someone has impaired thyroid. Someone has hormonal problems. If there's a lot of inflammation, diabetes, all these factors can influence one's muscle metabolism and can lead to decreases in muscle mass and quality. So it's age-associated. It's age it's complex and it's multifactorial. It's kind of this Venn diagram, so to speak. Now, in the year 2010, very similar people, but different people, again, got together. Um, and they determined that, well, we gotta define this, because people like me in the clinic need to be able to say to a patient, well, I think you, have, you may have sarcopenia, and now I think we need to do this, this, and this. But we can't do this, this, and this if we haven't identified it. It's like me telling someone you have high cholesterol without checking your cholesterol. That just doesn't, doesn't make sense. So they, they, this group here basically said, well, we know that we, have, we should define this, this uh, syndrome as reduced muscle mass, but we also need to think about muscle quality. And how do we measure that? It's either through muscle strength or physical performance. And we'll get to that in a minute. So have I confused anybody thus far? And if I haven't, then I'm not doing my job. I can tell you, this is part of my research is, is on sarcopenia in older adults. And when I first started kind of delving into this, I was like, Does, do these researchers know what they're talking about? Because I'm thinking about it, how can I study this in my patients and be able to provide the care that I need for, the, for patients at risk? So what we, we know thus far is that it's age-related, but it also can be worsened by a number of physical conditions. Either if you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is very often seen after hospitalization. If you're hospitalized, I always, I, I give the ballpark, when you're in bed for a day, it could take five to 10 days to recover. So, you know, to regain your physical strength. And that's why, for those of you who may have been hospitalized, if you haven't been up and around or sitting in a chair and just been in bed, you get weak pretty quickly. Um, it could be disease related, as I've mentioned, or it could be due to malnutrition. So a lot of causes. These are some, some of them in this schematic here. Uh, a couple of the bigger ones is physical inactivities, smoking, malnutrition, and genetics. Well, unfortunately, genetics you can't really t change. You're, you're given what you're given. Okay. So we've talked a lot about muscle mass, and I've kind of alluded to muscle strength. And I kind of showed you that slide of, with the weightlifters and the world record holders. But one of the things I think it's also important to be able to share with you is that 
While muscle mass decreases, muscle strength also decreases. So the ability to turn a doorknob, to lift a box, to push someone, not that you would want to go pushing anybody, right? Uh, but we know that even, this is in, in patients that were 70 to 79 years of age, over a three-year period, there was actually no change in muscle mass. So in a short period of time, you may not exhibit changes in muscle mass, but you will exhibit changes in strength. So changes in strength actually are likely occur before changes in your muscle mass. So that's important because we might be, we are able to measure strength in given ways, and I'll come to that in a minute. And that may help clinicians identify folks at risk. Okay, and why is this important? Well, we know that strength actually, those with reduced strength, and this is in that, lat, that curve that's pointed with the red arrow, both leg strength and grip strength, which is, your, and I'll show you the, the mechanism uh, to, to, to do this, those who are at reduced strength are actually at higher risk for death. So again, it, it behooves us to encourage our patients to be physically active and to do strength-like training for folks not to be on that bottom curve. Now what happens if you throw obesity into the mix? Now, it's kind of the, I always find obesity is kind of the elephant in the room, but it's, it's a huge problem in our society in that over 70% of even older adults are overweight, and 35% uh, have a diagnosis of obesity. Those with obesity and reduced strength, that's a, even more of a lose-lose situation. So again, we want to be able to target these, uh, target and find uh, these patients. So I've given a lot of info thus far, and I always like to kind of take a pause and give the so what question. So you may have met Dr. Bartels, who has been mentoring me since I've been here at Dartmouth, and he always asks me that question. He's like, John, okay, great information, so what? So I'm about to tell you the so what. So why is this, this sarcopenia thing that I'm talking about important? One, it leads to disability. No one wants that. Two, it, lead, it, it increases one's risk for other medical problems. No one wants that. Three, it increases one's risk for death. No one really wants that. Four, increases healthcare costs. I had to put that in, we're at Dartmouth, we talk about healthcare costs all the time, so. <laughs> Importantly, it leads to falls. And that's one third of old, older adults over the age of 65 actually fall. So this is very, very important. And it actually, there's some evidence that shows that those with sarcopenia have weakened immune systems and are increased risk for infection. Okay, so we talked about the mortality. And this is a study that came out a couple of years back, but for those of folks with a quantitative kind of mind, um, by gender, this is, these are the added costs of sarcopenia per year. Now this is in $2,000. So you probably can multiply that by about 10, and it's probably, you'll probably get to $2,015. But importantly, it represents about 1.5% of the U.S. health expenditures, which 
1.5% does not sound like a lot, but when you look at the overall cost, it's quite a bit of money. So these, this study really was interesting. They actually said, well, what happens if we reduce the number of people with sarcopenia by 10%? Which doesn't, it's not, that's not a huge deal, but it amounts to over $17.4 billion in savings. Again, this is $2,000, year, year $2,000. So again, I'd multiply probably by 10. So identifying and preventing folks from be, kind of getting into that sarcopenia category is about most important. Okay. So to, to make things a bit more complicated, we talked a little bit about obesity. And the redder the data, the higher the rate of obesity in a given state. And you can see here, blue indicates 10 to 14% of patients have, uh, are over, uh, have obesity. And as the years go on, this is, is the majority of the United States, as I mentioned, over 35% of the older adults in the United States have degree of obesity. And this is also occurs in older adults. So when I go to obesity conferences or aging conferences, I hear, well, obesity is not a problem in older adults. But in fact, it really is, and it just hasn't been fully, um, fully appreciated and fully uh, uh, invested at this stage. So you add this patient with sarcopenia, patient with obesity. So you've got a lose-lose situation here. Because both independently, a patient with sarcopenia will have an increased risk of disability. A patient with obesity is at higher risk for disability. You put those two together, there's actually a synergistic effect in the wrong direction. So it's a lose-lose combination. Um, I think I already showed that, I apologize. So high fat mass, low muscle mass leads to more functional limitations and metabolic problems. A lot of, the, a lot of studies have examined these two syndromes separately. Very few have examined them together. And that's something that I'm, I have an interest of myself. So hopefully I've started to scare you a little bit. And I'm always a, I'm a, I have a mindset of a kind of a, of a doer, and I don't know if any of you have read this book, but it's a, it's a great book about execution, not meaning you take an idea and you get it into action. And um, it was a leadership course that I had taken a couple years back. But anyway, it's a good read if anyone <coughs> is interested. So. I think about how do I go about identifying patients with sarcopenia. Anyone who's over 60 years old, who's a fall risk, high fall risk, whose walking speed has decreased. Now, contrary to popular belief, if I'm in the hallway typing away or catching up on from my last patient, and patients of mine are getting roomed, so you guys don't know this, but I do this. I watch out of the corner of my eye as patients are walking down the hallway. And most, most clinicians do that to see. Because I, I've noticed changes in patients who have said, you know, who one, one year will come in walking no problem. Next thing you know, they may have a cane or a walker or walking really, really slowly. And that at least alerts me to say, well, maybe we should actually measure 
one's speed, walking speed. Anyone who's had a, a, a recent and prolonged hospitalization, and really, as you're in the room, if someone has difficulty getting out of a chair, so if you're sitting in, if, I'm, if someone's sitting in the chair and they can't get up and they need to use their hands to get up, that indicates some muscle weakness. So anyone who's had a change in health status, change in function, I'll talk about grip strength in a minute. Whoever has noticed an unintentional weight loss, and so thankfully we've started to check weights on everybody every time they come into the clinic visit. And we're able to kind of scan to see has the weight gone down. And if the weight has gone down unintentionally, that's, that should be a red flag for providers. So thankfully, someone got really smart last year. And another smarter group of people got together, uh, this time at the National Institutes of Health, and said, okay, we've talked all about the sarcopenia bit. It's great, it's nice, and you can describe it all you want. But put your money where your mouth is. What do we want to do? We want to help our patients. We want to identify patients. How do we go about doing this? And they recognize the benefits of checking and looking at muscle mass. Fine, done. But they, they were thankfully were primary care clinicians and geriatricians on this committee. And that said, hey, in clinic, how, I'm busy. I'm seeing a lot of patients. And we can't do all these fancy schmancy tests. So they said, well, let's look at something called grip strength. And I apologize, I'm, I passed by my clinic today, our clinic today, and it was under lock and key. Someone had locked it. But we ha I wanted to show you what, it, what we are planning, I think in the next month or two, to introduce in our, in our own clinic. But to use grip strength, which allows one to test upper body strength as a surrogate for muscle strength and muscle mass. So this gizmo here on the right, is something called a dynamometer. There's another Greek word for you. Which measures strength. And the goal is for someone to squeeze it three times, and you basically take the best of the three readings. And there's a little gauge that kind of goes up, and it gives you the strength in kilograms. This committee has actually implemented guidelines that said, okay, using this gizmo, which is, is relatively cheap, it's about $150 to $200, so in relative healthcare cost terms, it's, it's affordable. And it takes all of, of about 30 seconds to do. So from a, from a primary care standpoint where it's chaotic, it's busy. I'm sure you've all experienced it in one way or another. This can be done, say, by our nursing assistant. As you check your blood pressure, you check your grip strength, you check your weight. Very easy to done, and the amount of information that this could give you is just unbelievable. Why aren't they doing it? We are gonna be doing it. Going. Yeah, we're starting. So thankfully, at least across the street, we've gotten uh, we have gotten a bit more uh, support staff to be able to support us to be able to introduce some of these things. 
So for those of you who get care across the street, stay tuned, this is coming. The nice thing here is that this allows you to determine, does a patient have this sarcopenia that I've been talking about all along? So it allows me as a provider to say, okay, the patient in front of me is at high risk for disability in the short term or intermediate term or long term. And that's, that's invaluable information to everybody involved because you can do something about it. Now, there's another cutoff. Some others advocate using this grip strength and dividing it by body mass index, and that could be done uh, as well. Uh, but I think, I think the grip strength is gonna prevail because it's just it's easier. You don't have to do any calculations uh, to, to get, get the number. Great question. And that has actually come up. And what uh, the, this consensus, this, this smart group of people said, even if you have arthritis in your hands, when they looked at patients with arthritis in their hands and maybe not in the knee or the hip, the muscle strength was very similar, believe it or not. So even if you have difficulty squeezing it, if you test muscle strength lower extremity strength, so uh, it's usually the quadriceps, so it's the big muscle over here, the strengths are very, very similar. The problem with measuring leg strength is the machine is, fits about a, a quarter of the size of this room, and uh, it's, it's about $2,000, so. This test suggests that the sarcopenia is not a localized issue. That's correct. So even though you're, you're testing it in, in kind of the one extremity, usually it's in the dominant hand, and I use my right because I'm dominant, right? Uh, so if you're left-hand dominant, you'd use their left hand. If, and some folks, if, you know, in amputees, you'd use, they would use it in, their, in the hand that they had. It's still a general indicator of general muscle strength in the rest of the body. Doctor, the reason I asked that yeah. was that uh, from, from boyhood, I used to rip boxes in the store with my hand, yeah. whereas others couldn't even lift it. I used to rip it. So with this excessive use, pulling ladders, pulling, mm -hmm. cutting, cutting things with uh, knives and hatchet holding, I maintain I still have the strength. I, I wonder if this is a valid statement. So when we see you, we'll, we'll check that. We'll see. And you know, it's, um, and that is a testament to lifelong aging. When folks say to me, what is, what is the goal of lifelong aging? It's really to, is doing a lot of physical activity, both aerobic and strength training. And that would, that's reflected probably in your, in your grip strength. I hope you're gonna talk about doing both. Yeah. The muscle training and the aerobic. It's coming. They're quite different. Yeah. So I, I put this slide up here talking about gait speed and just to kind of prove to you that folks with uh, a low grip strength, very low grip strength, have a high risk of having a, uh, a low gait speed. So, the, so both gait speed and grip strength are very much related. So, but again, what's easier, say, for us to do in the clinic? It's grip strength. In the hallway, it's very difficult. You know, you have on one side of the hallway, providers lined up with their laptops typing away, and then you're trying to you know, slip through on the other side. So there isn't that, it's, unless you have a physical plant, 
to accommodate that, the grip strength is, I think, is going to prevail. Okay. So I'm hoping I've up. Is everything clear up to this point? Any questions up to this point? So it's either really good or really bad. Okay. So I've talked about function. And why is this important? Because we know that the more impairments of ADLs, this is the bathing, dressing, toileting, feeding yourself, getting out of bed, and uh, washing yourself. Those, yeah, all the basic. Those who are dependent have a higher in-hospital death, have a higher risk of death at one year, and have a higher risk for nursing home placement. So again, I come back to full circle to this, the importance of function. And we religiously are asking about these questions in patients who are, are frail or are, who, are, who are visibly and, you know, per discussion, I just note to us that, you know, I'm not doing so well at home. And these are the things that we need to be asking about uh, at, at visits. So we talked a little bit about bed rest. How, and when patients of mine are in the hospital and I get wind that they are lying in bed, not moving, not sitting in the chair, this drives me bananas. And I've been known to, to be vocal. I'll leave it at that. And, and why? Because I, we know there's no reason for someone to be in bed. There's no medical reason. For instance, they're having, they've had back surgery or they've fractured something in, in their spine you know, are two examples where it may not be a smart thing to get up. But otherwise, if there's no reason for them not to sit in a chair or, to, or sit up in their bed, or to walk around, they should be up and, up and moving. So important. Why? You stay in bed, your exercise capacity goes down, your ability for your muscles, you, the muscle oxygenation drops, you then lose muscle and bone, that leads to weakness, and guess what? Once you're weak, you really don't want to get out of bed, so you stay in bed even more, and your exercise capacity drops, and you can see there's a vicious, vicious cycle. You threw bone in there all of a sudden. Yeah. But you, you mentioned it before. Right? No, I had not. Um, but we know that prolonged bed rest actually can lead to bone loss. And the, the, the example, one example that we see is our astronauts, actually. When they're up in space, because there's no gravity, they actually lose both muscle mass and bone, bone mass. I would guess you're wondering if there's other way to lose bone mass. Well, there is. Oh, okay. But Never it's mind. kind of outside the scope of this talk, but yeah. Um, pain. I'm hoping everybody's asked about pain is being asked about pain in their visits, and if they're not, you should ask your provider why. Usually, it's on at least across the street. We have a pink or purple questionnaire. Do you have pain today? Uh, and this is important because, say, you have arthritis and you have pain, and you're not moving because of the pain. What happens to your muscles? They deteriorate, and if the muscles deteriorate, can lead to worsening pain, which really makes you not want to get get up and moving. So again, you see, there's there's a lot of vicious cycles going on, and the goal is really to kind of break these cycles. 
Um, I've talked about gate speed before, and I just, again, it's a very good predictor of uh, long-term life expectancy. So it's, it's, so patients of mine that are, say, 80 years of age and are able to walk down the hallway very, very quickly versus those that may not, their, their, their physiology, their ability, their, their chronological age may not match their physiological age, if that makes sense. So. So in case anyone wants to know how we measure muscle mass, uh, more academic, but I think it's, in, it's important at least just to share. This is, something, this is a, an old-fashioned DEXA machine. So the machines that are used to check for osteoporosis actually can measure muscle mass and, muscle and, and bone mass and fat mass. It's all in the software, believe it or not. And it's literally a flip of a switch. So which is a shame because you're getting the test anyway for another reason and it's literally in this day and in this computer age it's literally pushing the button and it would give you another set of data I don't they do it I had one of these not so long ago yeah yeah so yeah. I've got been treated for one thing yeah could I, can I ask I mean can I say to the technician the next time I get this thing the technician probably will say, I don't, I, can't order. I don't know, and we don't know how to order that. But my doctor can order this. I believe it's, it's, it's very involved. I know I tried, I had put in an application for a, a grant application to do DEXA scanning on folks, and the, the hoops that I had to go to to figure out how they can do this. They, the software needs to get installed. Right, that's what I was thinking, the software isn't there. The, right. well, it's available. It's available, but it's not. But it's not on these, like this is an old machine, but on the, the updated machines. Um, and the, the big reason for that, yeah. this is an editorialized comment, but it's because it's not reimbursed. So it's hard, it, you know, so you have commercial insurers or Medicare say, well, you did this extra thing on our dime. But and how much would it be, for instance? Well, it's the software. That's the problem. The software is probably in the in the range of thousands of dollars. But it's literally like I know there are some centers when um, when I did my training out at Mayo Clinic, there was that option to do that, and now employees have the option if they have bone density scan to get body composition, so fat and muscle, and it's literally a flip flick of a switch. Can I ask another question? Absolutely. Should we protest? <laughs> <laughs> so if if. It, if I'm diagnosed with um, moderate to severe osteoporosis, mm -hmm. it makes sense for me to be tracking muscle mass if I've got that kind of bone loss at an early age. So great question. And there's actually an um, evolving kind of discussion in the literature right now of something called sarco-osteoporosis. So kind of break it down, sarco-sarcopenia, osteoporosis, osteoporosis. <laughs> And uh, we know very little about that. It really, it's kind of an under-researched area at this stage. But that's, a, a, you know, because I thought of that. Can I sign up for the next research project? Uh, I'm always, I'm, a, I'm a hoping to start enrolling folks in the coming months, so uh, stay tuned. And it'll be advertised here in the center. So we, we never say no to folks. So as I think I've gone through all this. So a couple of the questions that I haven't answered, and I'm, I'm sure you're all waiting to say, when is this guy going to talk to us about this? Is what's the role of nutrition, and what's the role of physical activity? 
And are there any medications that we can use in this? Okay. The one last thing I want to talk before I get to those topics is weight loss. A number of folks come to me and say, I need to lose weight. Okay? The key here is when you lose weight as an older adult, and I use that term very loosely, over the age of 60, you not only lose fat, but you lose muscle. So cutting your calories is great, but you need to do that plus fit types of physical activity to prevent muscle loss, which I'll talk about. And that's what's key, because if you just, if you just lose weight, it's great you lost your fat mass, but you're also losing muscle mass at the same time. And that, which I've, hoped, I've proven to you, is not a good thing. What about, you can't talk about um, obesity, yeah. but the nutrition piece on the other end, yeah. are they equally as um, high in mortality? I mean, you know, the nutrition, that's what I have trouble with. So I'll, a lot of it, again, the, the obesity bit is a bit outside the scope of this particular lecture, but just briefly, when you have the, the sarcopenia and obesity, the challenge is very, very difficult in terms of you want to be able to lose weight and lose fat mass, but you want to be able to preserve muscle mass at the same time. So there, pardon? That's what I want to learn. Yep, and that's what we're, we're all trying to learn. Um, there, are some, um, there are some studies that, not many, but there are some that have shown uh, improvements in weight, improvement in body composition, loss of fat, preservation of muscle and maintenance uh, and improvement in muscle strength. And that's what you want to do. A lot of that has to do with a combination of nutrition and uh, physical activity, which I'll get to. So the treatment options. Before we talk about what to do, it's, I, I find it's always important to figure out, well, what's the goal? Now, everybody has different goals. And when patients of mine say to me, well, I was 170 pounds when I was in college. And I just say, okay, stop. That's years back. Let's focus on now. Because what ends up happening is that we want to make sure that the goals today are, are important to the person. And what I mean by that is it's not necessarily living longer. While for some that may be a goal. What, I've, what I observe is that it's also about quality of life, physical function, being able to play with grandchildren, walking around the block. And you'd be amazed that these are very different outcomes of outcomes that other clinicians may think about. I'm not saying that the other factors like improvement in blood pressure, improvement in diabetes and cholesterol and that, all that is not important. But for some folks, if you ask, and, and it, the literature shows this, if you ask patients what is important, it's really some of these other outcomes that I've mentioned here. So, I love this question. What's an ideal diet? And for sarcopenia, this, is a, this was a great paper that was just published actually last year. When I think about sarcopenia, I think about I got to increase one's protein intake. And I'll show you data that shows that older, well, 
all adults, but in particular older adults, their ability to make protein drops, their ability to use it to the amount of protein that they take in is reduced as well. So you want to increase protein intake. And there are a variety of different ways, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. We advocate protein supplementation. Boost and Sure are, are two given examples. Interestingly, this paper did not find any effect, but after reading the paper a bit more closely, there were a number of flaws in the paper, so I, I, don't, I don't overly trust that, those results. There is some emerging evidence that amino acids may help with muscle quality. Jury's still out, but it's looking favorably. Fatty acids doesn't help. So the fish oil in for sarcopenia, not saying for cholesterol, for sarcopenia does not help. What about dieting? Okay. I always sometimes get cringe when I talk about diets, and the reason for that is there are some diets that promote a reduced protein. And that really is what it's akin to what occurs in sub-Saharan Africa where folks starve and they're catabolizing, so they're breaking down their protein stores, i.e. muscle. Not good at all. So I, any of these low-protein diets, I would not recommend at all in, this, in, this, in, in, your, in an aging population. Why? Because it can, it can promote muscle loss. And that's, we're, we're looking for the other way around. Um, this is one of my favorite diets. Again, I'm biased being of Greek origin, but Mediterranean diet works well, leads to weight loss. There are a number of other diets that can be used. A lot of the dieting leads to, can, you know, and again, with protein supplementation, can lead to weight loss. But the key here is maintaining that diet. And this is what, when folks regain their weight, there's a weight loss phase, but there's also a weight maintenance phase. And you basically, you fall off the wagon a couple of months after you start off and start, uh, start dieting. So, I love protein. So only 30 to 41% of females actually have adequate protein intake. And for males, it's even less. So, a dietitian would say, well, the recommended daily allowance for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. Complex formula, if you have, if you have a smartphone, the smartphone, there are multiple apps that can figure that out for you. But virtually no older adults have a protein intake of more than 35% of the recommended daily allowance. This is based on data, real data. So we're not doing a good job here of, of protein intake. And as I mentioned, older adults produce less protein than younger uh, people. And a larger amount of protein produces the same response. So you need protein as building blocks, of muscle, of organs, and the like. So compare someone who's 30, 40 years younger, the same, a larger amount of protein is needed to make, do the same job. So do I recommend a referral to, diet, diet, to a dietitian? I do. It's, and again, I am a firm believer that when you're getting care, not only for sarcopenia, but in, in geriatrics as a whole, 
your provider is only one, your clinician provider is only <coughs> one spoke of a wheel. Patients in the middle, and there are a whole bunch of folks that are supposed to support you. Dietitian in this situation would be another person to support you. Um, and what a dietitian will do is really go through your food history, go through a dietary recall, what it, you know exactly what you've eaten in the last week, and to say, you know what, why don't you substitute this with a little bit of you know high protein yogurt, or cut out the fat here and substitute with this food, and that's where, where the diet the relationship with a dietitian can be very very helpful. They'll engage you. Their goal is to engage you. Their goal is to you know engage in motivational interviewing and really to try to change your behavior and encourage you to make positive changes. So, these are some examples of protein. Fish, eggs, not the mouse, but, well, I guess mouse does have, mice would have a bit of protein in it, but cheese. Cheese. Cheese, cheese, yeah. That's fat, wouldn't it? So again, it's all about balance. And, and I'm giving more of an overview here. It may be different for individualized patients. Um, the recommendations for patients who are at risk for disability or at risk for sarcopenia should be a higher recommended daily allowance of 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram per day. And these are kind of ballpark protein numbers depending on your weight. So could you go to the other slide for a second? Yeah. So what you're saying is that a 200 pound, this is men or women, doesn't make a difference? Right. They should probably are getting in 73 grams, but they really should be getting 109 That's correct. grams. Yeah. That's a lot. That is a lot. Every day. And that's going to make a significant difference. It's thought that that would make it, that would improve muscle quality and muscle strength. Yes. It, are Meals on Wheels and all of these uh, care yeah. providers now trying to redistribute the plate? They, sh make they this? should. They so should. So the um, <coughs> the US, uh, USDA has actually redesigned the plate. So if you recall, years back there was the plate which. Yeah. Subdivided, it's at, and the food pyramid has actually changed as well. Um, but yeah, in older, old, again, there when when folks at the national level are are making recommendations like this, the majority of the time they're making recommendations to the population as a whole. Right. Which, for the greater good of the population, it's correct. I'm putting my binoculars on and really focusing on older adults saying, well, that's good and all, but in older adults, we need to tailor it even more. What about the protein from beans and grains together? That'll, that counts. That's the same yep, thing. that counts. I always thought too much protein wasn't good for the kidney. Depends, and again, this is very individualized. So folks with significant, again, I'm not kind of going into the details of individual medical conditions. So. Folks with advanced kidney disease or advanced liver disease, this wouldn't go. I'm kind of just talking about generalities here. A question always comes up about, this, about protein supplements. Uh, when I was in, um, in medical school, my, my roommate had the Costco size uh, whey supplement, and he seemed to go through a whole 
huge container every every month. Uh, I didn't really care for it. We don't know. We don't know if this works. Um, How is he? <laughs> you know, funny you mentioned he's six foot three, uh, and he's thin as a stick. Can't in you know very healthy, but he's still he's still using it. <laughs> he he visited me last summer with his wife and his kids and. And I'm like, Jared, what's that? He, it was a baggie full of whey supplements. <laughs> so I'm like, things don't change. No gourmet. No. So these are some other ways you can increase your protein. Beneprotein and Sure, as I mentioned. There are a lot of bars, you know, nutrition bars. Uh, these Power Bars or Fiber One Bars has, have a lot of, quite a bit of protein as well. So, I, I, so this is Ben Johnson you remember Seoul 1988 Olympics. And the reason I put him on here, you're probably wondering why, is because folks ask, and I've had a number of patients come say, I hear testosterone is helpful for muscles. And they sometimes want to look like the Hulk, <laughs> or they look at like the, the guy on the Sky Mile ma magazine when you go flying. And that's not really the case, actually. Testosterone, when you look at biologically, what should happen? When you look at the mechanisms, it makes sense that giving testosterone should improve muscle mass and muscle quality. But there's emerging evidence. One, the trials are not showing that. And two, more importantly, testosterone supplementation actually is increased risk of stroke and death and heart attacks. So it's not something that we go recommending at this stage. Contrary to what some health and wellness cl clinics, and particularly at least, I know at least a decade ago, were very proactive about recommending testosterone therapy. And this is, even for, in, particularly for males, independent of risk, uh, worsening risk of prostate cancer and uh, clinically significant pro prostate cancer. So a lot of side effects. So how about vitamin D? I love vitamin D. I just love it. And I'm being very serious about that. I really believe that the evidence is there to say that vitamin D is an important hormone that affects almost every organ system. Can you take too much? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you absolutely can. And again, always under the auspices and guidance of your, of your provider. So as I mentioned, it affects almost every system. This is a kind of a schematic that outlines that. I'm not gonna go into the details. A question comes is, well, you get vitamin D from different sources. And vitamin D therapy is really one of the cornerstones of sarcopenia management. So you can get vitamin D from dairy products that gets absorbed into your intestines, or you can get it from the, from the skin. And then that gets metabolized in the liver, acts on the kidneys, and then it produces calcium and assists with bone metabolism. So vitamin D increases muscle tone, increases muscle strength, increases ability for muscles to contract, increases the number of muscles, and allows for better and quicker contractions. So this is good stuff for sarcopenia. This question always comes up. 
Should I take vitamin D2 or D3? Well, the way I think about it is if your tank is empty, get, get vitamin, take vitamin D2 to fill it up, and then convert to vitamin D3 because it's more of a steady state. That's kind of the gist of an answer I, I kind of give. So this is my daughter and I on a beach last year, and that's a huge crab. And I put this up because that was in Florida. And unfortunately, we're not in Florida, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> so sunshine, huge issue in the north. And, but I put this, this study up here. Why? Because I want to show you that even in patients in Florida, older adults in Florida are even vitamin D deficient, irrespective of the sun. Sun helps with vitamin D. I'm not going to go denying that. But the, the proportion of folks with vitamin D deficiencies is, is even high in, uh, in Florida. This is part of the food plate that we talked about. So vitamin D, where can you get it? Not my favorite fish, the herring or the mackerel, or tuna for that matter. You have salmon, and then you have cod liver oil. Yeah. And again, uh, uh, Rebecca will is happy to give you these these slides for examples if you if you'd like. Other vitamin D fortified products: soy milk, orange juice, milk itself, total cereal, just as an example. And there are a number of other effects of vitamin D. It strengthens muscles, but it also reduces one's risk of falling. So we know that. Better muscle strength is actually associated with reduced falls, and we're thinking that vitamin D may be a mediator. So it's, it's hugely, it's, that's why I, when I said I love vitamin D, this is one of the reasons I love it. But should it be taken separately or with calcium? Or does it matter? Um, uh, the calcium issue is, is, is obviously one that uh, has come up in the media in terms of should you take calcium alone versus vitamin D? I, I now recommend if you're going to take calcium, you take it with vitamin D. Some folks who have normal bone density and are taking enough calcium in their diet can take vitamin D alone uh, and separately. Can you go to multivitamin? I mean, my example is that I am almost out of my senior multivitamin. Yeah. I was going to the drugstore yeah. yesterday. I go, no, I'm going to wait and see what the doctor says. <laughs> Great question. Again, it indiv it's individualized. The general multivitamin, and again, it depends on the multivitamin. Um, some multivitamins have 200 units of vitamin D. Others have 400 units of vitamin D. Um, the American Geriatric Society actually put some guidelines out of it in terms of vitamin D supplementation. And their recommendation is that everybody should be on at least 800 of vitamin D, irrespective of, of, of medical problems. Um, so sometimes even just the general multivitamin may not be sufficient, but it's again, it's a discussion to have with your, with your individual clinician based, based on medical problems. But how would you know if you said you can have too much? So how would you know that? So the chances of you having too much vitamin D using conventional dosing even up to 2,000 units is very, very low. Um, I've had folks who, who come into the office and say, oh yeah, I've been on, I've been taking 8,000 units of vitamin D, and I check their level, and it's high, 
but it's not toxic. That said, we don't want you to be in that situation either. Um, Again, the American Geriatric Society has put out recommendations saying even taking between 800 and 2,000 is probably safe. Uh, and a lot of it depends on one's individual risk factors for vitamin D deficiency. And part of this vitamin D story here is to prevent this, which is a hip fracture. So we know that patients with good muscle strength have a reduced risk of falls, but even if they do fall, are less likely to sustain a hip fracture, which is, is a really, really unfortunate outcome. Okay. So we talked a little bit about how much there is debate as to, in the clinical literature, as to whether or not we should be checking vitamin D levels. I feel that we should. Others say that we don't. I think as a practice, our geriatric practice across the street, we do check it, uh, the levels. Uh, but there's, there isn't good consensus in the literature. American Geriatric says no. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinology says yes. I, can get, I, I get to say, I don't know if we should or shouldn't. <coughs> um, what I can say is if we do check your levels, and this is, this is how we treat it. So some patients can get away with over-the-counter vitamin D supplementation. Others whose levels or the tank is very, very low may need prescription-strength vitamin D for a period of time. And it's usually 50,000 units once a week for eight weeks, and then you're able to kind of convert to over-the-counter vitamin D. So this is an old picture of Christopher running, again, on, on a beach. Uh, but this is what's going to prevent you from getting sarcopenia. And I'm not saying running on a beach, although that takes the I'll, 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 I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really any type of physical activity. So I deliberately have this in bold, in bold and in caps. It's kind of screaming out at you. It's, the most powerful intervention currently available for sustaining one's strength and improving muscle mass is resistance and weightlifting exercises. So if someone says to me, how do I improve my muscle mass? That's what I say. I feel so strongly about it that I'm going to press the let me repeat myself button. <laughs> It's modifiable, yes. Not entirely, but the goal is you don't want to get down that slippery slope too far. That's, that's the key. So I feel very strongly about this that I have to put it twice. And you've seen this again. And this is what you don't want to do. You don't want your curve to pass this threshold. Okay, so I'm going to talk generalities here. I hope everybody picks up a CD. It's actually a DVD. This was done by one of my colleagues uh, before she left Dartmouth and one of our physical therapists. It's the a Use It or Lose It. It is a phenomenal CD that uh, allows you to use TheraBands, which are the stretchy bands, 
which are highly recommended, and you should be doing this, and I'll, I'll tell you how often you should be doing this, but they give you directed exercises on that DVD. <coughs> so, and if we run out for whatever reason, let, we can let Rebecca know and she can get, get, you, uh, get you some. Okay, so really, two types of exercise. When I talk about exercise, I really mean two types. What do I mean? One is aerobic exercise. The other is resistant exercise. The goal is as it is in younger adults. 150 minutes of aerobic exercise a week. What does that mean? That really means getting, trying to get your heart rate up a little bit, trying to get you to work a little bit of a sweat. And that could be even walking around the block. That's okay. It's just moving. The goal is to move. Patients ask me, can I divide it up, do three days a week of 50 minutes, or six days a week of math, 20 some minutes, 25 minutes, or 24 minutes. Don't hold me accountable for my math. Yes, you can. Can I do it in three 10 minute intervals per day? Yes, anything. Just move, that's what I say, just move. The resistant exercise is a little different. Two to three times a week, 30 to 40 minutes, and this increases flexibility, strength, and endurance. The goal with any exercise, and this is where patients run into problems, they hurt themselves, they tear ligaments, they strain their muscles, is the new year comes around and they say, I want to, my new year resolution is to do some physical activity. They get on a treadmill, they go start walking, they do the exercise, and ow. Not good. And you know, and again, I'm not saying this is an only specifically in older adults. This happens, this happened to me a number of years back. I got on the treadmill on January 1st and I ripped my, uh, my, my hamstring. Seven months later, I was able to do exercise. But you know, it just, that's just the way it is. It, so you gotta start low, go slow. And trying to find your remote control on your couch is not, not considered physical activity. It's all about goal setting. The biggest impediment to physical activity is really getting yourself to do it. So, it's about saying, today, I'm gonna decide to be more active. Tomorrow, I'm gonna find, about, find out about exercise classes in my area. End of the week, I'm gonna ask a friend to exercise with me. Very important, doing it together, doing it with, you know, having the social interactions while you do activity actually increases your chances of sustainability down, down the road. In two weeks, I'm gonna make sure I have all the appropriate clothing and footwear. And then you want a long-term goal setting. And this could be anything, this is, this is just an example. But a lot of the goal setting is actually the middle panel, which is saying, I wanna play with my grandkids. I wanna be able to do that or walk with my grandkids. How to gauge your effort? Probably working a little too hard. Probably not working hard enough. <laughs> so as I mentioned, reiterating, two to three days a week, 30 to 40 minutes, and rotate the exercise. So don't work on upper body for consistent sessions. 
And again, the DBT will go through the individual types of exercises for you. Start with one to two pound weights or the TheraBand, they come in different colors. And strengths. Yeah, so the colors represent different strengths. And, pardon? Never mind. Uh, so I always recommend if you haven't done a physical activity program, start low and then go slow. And breathe. People don't breathe. That's not a good thing. So daily exercise can improve strength and reduce frailty. There was a huge, huge trial that is kind of a, one of the pinnacle trials in, in the geriatrics world that just got published this past year that proved what we all knew, that physical activity reduced disability. And, we're think, and they think that it was mediated through sarcopenia. The other things, and you don't have to go buy weights, you have them in your house. Soup cans, milk jugs, that can be used. The key here is to talk to your provider and, re and say, I'm, I, this is what I want to do. And anytime you have any symptoms that are unexplained, share them. I can tell you personally, I want to know. I want our team to know if you're having any kind of symptoms. I'd rather know than find out we have a problem, you're in the ER, then you get admitted because of that problem. The goal is really to be fun and safe. And you've seen, and these are the TheraBands, here are some examples. So I'm not going to go through these here just because they're on the CD here and just in the interest of time. Um, for those of you that want a lot more information, uh, this website has a lot of the information that I've, um, or not a lot of, some of the information that I've uh, discussed today, but has a more comprehensive read. Um, we encourage referral to physical therapy as well. As physical therapists are a cornerstone to management of sarcopenia. Ooh, could you put that back? Absolutely. So I'm hoping I, I proved to you that the sarcopenia syndrome is, is one that's really not talked about, but it's hugely important in, in patient and older adults and in their physical function because it can affect one's risk of disability, risk of death, and certainly quality of life. Very difficult to figure out does a person have one, but, it's, but some of the newer criteria is really going to allow us to move this into the clinic to be able to better identify folks. The ways to manage it are very, very straightforward. And really the cornerstone is physical activity and exercise. And there, it, my goal is hopefully that I provided you with a foundation to kind of take the next steps. And it's not only about, uh oh, I have sarcopenia and I don't. It's actually about the prevention in folks that don't have it. So either you turn into Spider-Man and lifting weights at home, or you can be Usain Bolt and you know, run run the dash. We can? Yeah. 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 That fast? Yeah. Okay. I do that in my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
there are likely going to be emerging therapies coming shortly uh, that are in clinical trials. And once, once we understand the underlying mechanisms a little bit better, we'll be able to provide targeted therapy. So physical inactivity is a problem, vitamin D, smoking. I didn't really talk about depression kind of outside the scope of this. And really, nutritional supplementation is our cornerstones. So our population is aging. Sarcopenia is part of the aging process. And balanced diet and exercise are really the cornerstones of the therapy. And hopefully, live happily ever after. Thank you. Thank you. What do you say to the primary care doc of your mother who is um, not, an, not aware that there are issues, the, the impending disability, living independently at the home, but not being particularly pushy or instrumental in making like therapeutic care available. Um, always very difficult when you're not getting details, when you're, you're not, you don't feel you're making progress. And what I do encourage is providing suggestions, you know, say, you know, I went to a lecture or I talked to my uh, friend of mine and, you know, they suggested that, you know, their mom is engaging in a physical activity class at the, you know, aging center or at the senior center. Um, what do you think? You know, it's, it's tricky, it's tricky. Or, you know, I think mom's getting a little weaker. Is there a way we can get her referred to physical therapy? So being proactive from that, that way. I would say, you know, very few primary care doctors, and again, I'm probably generalizing here, would be resistant to ideas. A lot of it is probably more that they're so busy that in the, in the course of the craziness that occurs in the primary care practice, it just didn't cross their mind. And I, I, I've been guilty of that myself. Uh, and, you know, patients and or families, you know, raise something and say, hey, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Doctor, I happened to see an article or read an article, and the issue was the depletion of mitochondria. So this leads me to ask you, is the health industry or granting research to do look into this depletion of the energy source um, I can't speak specifically on that but I know that that uh, mitochondrial DNA and uh, mitochondrial kind of genetics are a little bit of a hot, hot topic nothing something that that's that's not my forte per se um, but but yes you know you the NIH always wants to know about underlying mechanisms that can improve health and disease. That's the goal. That's their mission, actually. Well, if anyone has any questions, uh, happy to answer them. And you know, if you have any to Rebecca, you can send them to Rebecca, and she can forward them my way. And thank I thank you very much, much for everybody's thank attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.